Welcome to Multifamily Live. I'm Kaylee Arusi. And I'm Jason Arusi. Our mission is to help you unlock your full potential as a multifamily real estate investor. So you can do more deals, bigger deals, with less stress, keep more profit, and free up your time. Multifamily doesn't have to be a mystery. It's time to go live. Aloha, everyone, and welcome back to Multifamily Live. Super excited to have you back. And if you're just joining us, welcome. So I want to introduce you to my new friend, Samson Dragoras. Welcome to the show, Samson. Thank you for having me. It took us a little while to get this coordinated, so I'm excited to finally be here chatting with you. Well, super excited to have you here. And if you don't know Samson, Samson is an entrepreneur, Remax commercial real estate broker, president and founder of Growth View Properties. Over his 12 plus year career in business, executive leadership and entrepreneurship, he has served as a professional futures and commodities broker, actively invested in real estate and acted as the chief strategy officer for Madwire uh, and INC 500 marketing and technology company located in Fort Collins, Colorado. Samson currently puts together large commercial apartment investments throughout the United States, opportunistic land development, fix and flip and buy and hold deals in Northern Colorado and sits on the executive leadership team at Madwire where he developed growth revenue from seven million to over 100 million and grown the employee the employed base from 35 employees to 600 employees in 10 years welcome samson yeah thanks for having me you know um the when you read that out loud sometimes you don't give yourself enough credit uh, it's been 12 years in business and uh, i i would say i'm a late bloomer entrepreneur because i had so much opportunity to grow inside of a really awesome company that you just alluded to, which is a marketing and technology company. And um, yeah, so it's kind of cool to hear somebody else read it out loud. I was <laughs> going to say that, that awesome was, introduction. That was a mouthful. And I'm sure you deserved every single moment of that incredible bio. <laughs> my listeners out there who are just starting, they want to know, how did you get your start? Did you just wake up one day and be this Fortune 500 entrepreneur? Where did that growth come from? Where did you start from? Man, I never, if you had to ask me when I was a young kid, what my life was going to look like when I grew up, I, I had no idea. You know, I grew up in a blue collar house. Money was pretty hard, hard to come by. My dad was a contractor. I was a skater kid, listened to a ton of punk rock music. And um, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, I think sometimes when people have these entrepreneurial stories, right? They're what I call a purebred entrepreneur. And I have a few of those friends. I'm sure we all do. They're your friend that was like slinging candy bars in school and, you know, hiring other people to do their chores and stuff. That was not me. Um, I'm laughing because I just had that conversation with someone that went into the dollar store, bought candy and flipped it when she was like five, no joke, 10 minutes ago. So let's keep on going. But yeah, I, so I, I didn't know that. I didn't have those examples in my life of what that looked like. You know, my dad, um, I guess he was an entrepreneur, but he was really a sole proprietor. You know, he built himself a glorified job and tried a lot of times to grow his business, but it never quite busted out beyond him and leveraging some subs. I knew I didn't want to be on the side of business slinging hammers. Um, I just saw how hard my dad worked and I knew I could use my mind. So I, I, to me, success looked like, you know, maybe going and being a doctor or doing something like that. So 
I played football. I found football when I was about 14 years old. It pretty much dictated my life for about 10, 11 years. Ended up playing at the University of Colorado, graduated with a degree in human physiology and thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, but playing football and trying to get a human physiology degree um, and still have fun in college. Uh, my grades pretty much determined that orthopedic surgery was not in the cards for me because I wasn't ready to go back to school and just share up some of those classes in order to go to med school. So, um, so I was getting ready to graduate, had met my wife at that point, knew that I wanted to marry her. And I thought, man, what, where can I go and start making some money? So uh, I had an opportunity to get into the futures and commodities space. And for a lot of people have never heard of that, but basically as a series three licensed commodities broker, you know, we're trading things like crude oil, um, gold, silver, grains, cattle, pigs, things like that. And primarily that market was used for people to hedge their physical crop or physical production. Um, so I graduated on a Friday with a degree in human physiology. I walk into a commodities brokerage on a Monday. Three months later, I'm a newly crowned broker. In September 29th, 2008, the Dow Jones falls 777 points in a single day, which sets off the economic housing crisis. Yeah, ouch. I saw your mouth, but ouch, yeah, painful. But when you are young and dumb and, you know, have effectively negative money to your name, you know, what else do you have to lose? So while most people were running out of the industry, I stuck with it. Um, it was a tumultuous time and I got baptized in the deep end as, as it relates to economics and finance and watched a lot of people make a lot of money and watched a lot of people get killed. Um, but that was really the beginning of my investing journey and entrepreneurship journey and really where I found my passion for finance. Um, because again, I like, I didn't have anybody in my family that really was, you know, sh show me those, those options. So I, um, so let's so dive a little bit into that. Sure. So you started in football and which is, which is a mindset within itself. Right. And then you survive as basically a kid just jumping into, into, into the commodities world. 2008 basically slams you in the face. Yep. So how does this mindset carry into your life today? Yeah. So um, let's see. I think I get a lot of my work ethic from my dad. You know, he's blue collar. My dad had literally been living on his own since he was about 13 years old. So when it comes to just that relentless grit, oh, that's where I get that. But then I was a skater kid. So if people don't understand much about skating, you know, you try to land a trick about a hundred times and fall, literally physically fall on your face. Uh, you, you build up some pretty tough skin, uh, literally and metaphorically. And uh, so that definitely carried on, but I, I really have always enjoyed that part of the process, the grind of the work, because when I think back on my football career, I don't, I don't remember the games all that clear, but I remember the countless hours of training and the work and the grind. And um, you kind of learn to embrace that and love that. And I think that's, I think that's the difference between a, a lot of successful entrepreneurs and those that don't ever make it is they're just not willing to go hard enough and long enough in order to see it all the way through. Um, but then um, having lived through 2008, um, you just kind of accept it for what it is. You know, it is what it is. So I quickly learned about just this, the economic cycles that we live in. Uh, 
you know, every eight to 10 years, we have some sort of economic correction. So I had been patiently preparing for what we went through in 2020 with the COVID crisis, effectively 12 years Mm -hmm. to really triple down and do all the stuff that I really wanted to in real estate. And I don't even think that we've even seen the the cataclysmic event that we were probably anticipating 2020 would set off, mainly because the the government's been throwing band-aids on a gaping wound. So um, what it, all that taught me is that, you know, taking calculated risk is super important and, um, and managing your risk is even more important uh, if you're going to be a good real estate investor, because we are living in not so normal times. I mean, for the last 10 years, you could have closed your eyes, put a pin on the map and then bought real estate in that market and effectively been right. So there's some sayings that hold true, like in the stock trading world, it's that everybody's a genius in a bull market. Um, there's also another saying that says the market always needs another sucker. And so you, you know, you want to be very um, cautious and that you don't get confirmation bias. Well, look how good things are. So that's going to indicate how good things will be in the future. Um, so, yeah, so I'll just all that sharpening over my, you know, football career, childhood, as well as just living through 2008 has made me a much better and judicious investor. Let's dig into that because there's a couple of things that I would love to unpack, but there's so much juiciness there. So let's talk about this gaping wound that the U.S. government keeps on throwing Band-Aids on and how you think or what you think that correction might look like and when it's coming. I know we don't have a crystal ball, but we know it's coming. We've been saying it for years now because it's supposed to happen. It really is supposed to happen. So why is that something that investors should be, I don't want to say worried, but mindful about? Yeah. um, History doesn't repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme very, very close. And so It's not going to be, last time it was a housing crisis. That's not what's going to happen this time, um, in my personal opinion. So if you just kind of look at the dynamic that's going on right now, uh, there is a a huge number of millennials that are now well-established in their careers, who've paid off some of that debt, who are buying houses. However, there's, you know, 5.5 million single family home gap in the market. So there's definitely demand drivers that are going to continue to drive that. Um, Second to that, there is not enough multifamily housing to support affordability, uh, population growth, immigration, right? We need about 4.6 million new apartment units to be delivered by 2030. And we can only build about 300 new units a year and we lose 100,000 from the inventory every single year. So we'll be about 1.6 million units short by 2030. 30. So that's, that's the demographic factors that are driving that. But in a cheap money uh, environment, in a fiat currency market like we currently have, where we just print money at will whenever we want to, it, it's going to create inflation, no matter how you, and the, the government's trying to say it's transitory and that this isn't, won't, won't be here long-term. Just look at the simple facts. The median home price in 1987 was $87,000. The median home price today is over $300,000 nationally. So every year things are getting more and more and more expensive. And so when you're underwriting a deal 
it's really easy to make the returns look super sexy with those 6% rent bumps and this uh, overly optimistic outlook on the future. But there is a certain point when your, your customer base, i.e. your renters, are just going to say, no, I'm just not going to do it anymore. And people will move until they can afford to live. Um, the other side of that token, what I do think is going to be the cataclysmic event that sets off the next downturn will be a credit crisis. It will literally, we are using more credit card debt today in order to keep up with the rising costs of things, just the cost of living. And so affordability will be the biggest driver, in my opinion, of multifamily and real estate in the next 10 years, because I don't have to, I can work remote now. I don't necessarily have to be anywhere. I can go live somewhere, let's say in the Midwest or the Southeast, where my dollar goes a little bit further, i.e. Tennessee, I love Tennessee. And I can get a lot more bang for my buck. And, you know, I'm looking at the, the, the total increase in income versus valuations. And if you look in a market like, you know, I'm in Colorado. So if you look at a market like Denver, the valuations have far exceeded the income growth. It's very similar to how California has been time and time again through its cycles. And Colorado's always had this pitch that it's affordable. It's a great place to live, blah, 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 blah. Those days are gone. That does not exist anymore. And so, you know, in my community where I live, the median home price is like 550 in the neighboring community. It's like 600. So it's affordability um, is a crucial factor. And, and when you lose, when the credit's gone and there's a credit crunch and, and people start calling their debt, that's when you see the other shoe drop. Um, so I think that as in real estate investors, we need to be paying attention to that. If you look at a market like Oklahoma, it's not super sexy, but the valuations versus income have stayed pretty in line. So you, you, go, you can still go to Oklahoma and talk about six, $700 rents. Wow, that's amazing. You know, here just in Northern Colorado, our, our median rents like 1350 or something like that. It's crazy. So, yeah, so I guess I don't, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but that's, that's how I think about it. That fully answers my question. And then some, I actually want to backtrack a little bit and get your opinion because you, you mentioned a couple of things um, and maybe you can get a little bit more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Explain it a little bit more for some, for some investors or some of my listeners that might not completely understand what is, is going to happen. Maybe not necessarily the way you describe it, but say, like you said, the affordability, it, it, there's, it's not affordable right now, plus right. the credit crisis. How can investors today keep an eye on that and prepare for the incoming future? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, when I first got into commodity trading, you're trading highly, highly, highly leveraged things, right? And so just for an example, when the markets were at their you know, highest point of volatility, you'd come in and a, uh, a contract of crude oil would be up five bucks. That's a $5 swing or $5,000 swing. And by the end of the day, it would close negative $5. So you'd have a $10,000 swing in your account off of that one position. Um, but my mentor said that you're going to lose a lot more in this game than you'll ever win. You just have to make sure that your losses are small and control because when you win, you're gonna win 10X. But if you lose 10X, you can effectively uh, basically 
screw the pooch and not be able to play the game at all. And if you look at the sharp ratios on commodities, meaning the relative risk versus reward, uh, sharp ratios on commodities are effectively zero, right? In comparison to say like core commercial, which has better sharp ratios, risk reward profiles than, you know, small cap stocks, large cap stocks, or even bonds. Explain the ratios for, for some of my listeners that are not following. Yeah. So sharp, sharp ratios are just how much risk do I have to take in order to receive the reward? So the reason the sharp ratios in, um, in commodities are effectively zero is because it's only a matter of time before you lose so big that it wipes out all your gains. And what I mean by that is I've watched people take their account from $25,000 to a million and back down to $25,000 um, in no short order. Um, so in real estate, one of the things that's beautiful about it is I don't have to take an excessive amount of risk to get a pretty consistent return. Now, my, my returns are going to be somewhat muted, but it's all relative risk to reward. The more the greater the potential return, the greater the potential risk you're taking, which is why development tends to have much higher return profiles, but it also has a much higher degree of risk because there's a huge potential that the deal can go sideways. There's so many unknowns where, which is why we like acquisition, right? When I step into an acquisition deal, I already know what I'm getting into. There's a building, there's tenants, there's cash flow, and I'm just going to improve that. I can only improve it so much, um, but it's it, the, the risk reward profile there. So kind of going back to your original question. Um, I think the question was, what did I, how can, what, how can like, we are buy and hold, we are value add investors. Maybe some, of course, a lot of my listeners could be in the development space, whatever it is, this is multifamily live. So how can my multifamily investors, and I'm talking my large multifamily investors, prepare for the upcoming, as you said, cataclysmic event that is on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, the, the key is to just, you know, when one of the things I love about real estate is just manage your risk. Like everything that, Murphy's Law, everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Just because it hasn't gone wrong in the last 10, 12 years, it it could happen. And uh, if there's a credit crisis and you're really banking on some of these uh, egregious increases in your rent um, or you're betting on the come, meaning you're, you're buying it at a cap rate that it's not actually worth and anticipating that you're going to be able to drive the rents up to get it to an appropriate cap rate. That's a very dangerous game. So just plan on everything that will go wrong or can go wrong, will go wrong. And then stick to your, stick to your criteria. I mean, if you're doing it right, you should be, you should be passing on more deals than you're actually offering on. And if you're offering on them, you should be offering on them at prices that you know the deal makes sense at. Not because the broker's going, well, I got 12 offers at 70 a door. It's like, well, I think it's worth 62. So again, right, the market always needs another sucker. Um, the deals are there. They're just harder to come by and they take a lot more work. I want you to repeat that for the people in the back that are not listening, that part <laughs> about being a sucker. Don't be a, a sucker. Everybody is a genius in a bull market but you need to make sure that you're sticking to your criteria because if you want to be successful in this game, it only takes one deal going sideways one time for you to never be able to raise another dollar from an investor ever again. That 
that folks is your golden nugget for the day straight from Samson's mouth to your ears to your underwriting strategies stick to your guns folks it doesn't matter if you lost out on one deal 10 deals 100 deals there's a reason why you didn't get it and that reason is probably very good because if your numbers don't work out but i've seen this time and time again i'll see other people's numbers and I'm, I just say, okay. Right. Good luck. Good luck. Okay. Because there's something, either there's something that they see that I don't, which is great for them. Or like you said, they're the, they're going to be the sucker when, when, you know, the S hits the fan and then yeah. they have to really figure it out. So okay. Samson, is there something that I have not asked you today or something that you have not shared that my listeners could benefit from? You know, I think it's, um, I think one of the biggest questions that every person who wants to be in real estate has to ask themselves is, are they just interested in receiving the benefits that go along with owning real estate? Or are they interested in being in the business of real estate? Um, Explain the difference. Well, a lot of people decide like they're going to invest in real estate and it's like, this really simple side hustle, like selling Herbalife or something. It's not, it's a full-time, no, no offense to people who do that, but it's, it's not right. Like you're, you're literally starting a business. And so what keeps a lot of people from actually jumping into real estate is they don't have the knowledge, the expertise or the time to effectively do that or the desire because they're not ready to start a business. So then they kind of hit this crossroads where they decide, well, I guess real estate's not for me or maybe sometime in the future. And then they just go back to traditional investing Um, or they decide that they want to become a a passive investor, which is a great place to be. I mean, I sat down with a guy the other day. He has 12 properties completely paid off. Northern California makes a mint off of those every single year. His son's trying to get him to scale up and go bigger. And he's like, man, my life is good but I could take out a portfolio loan on this property, on these properties, yet one and a half million dollars at less than 1%. And I said, you could do that and then become a professional passive investor, like know how to screen deals and find great syndicators. Right. So um, it, you know, if you want all the benefits to go along with owning real estate, none of the brain damage, then call people like us. Um, I actually want you to explain that term professional uh, professional passive investor. Yeah. So taking it a step further, now you decide you want to become a passive investor. Your next step is you don't really know what you're talking about. Um, we were just talking about it, right? People are get aggressive with their underwriting. Well, how do you actually challenge the syndicator if you don't even know like how an IRR is actually came up with, right? Just because I put 6% rent growth per year, and some egregious, you know, day one cash flow into my model doesn't mean I'm actually going to be able to achieve it. And you know, 20% IRR sounds super sexy with a three-year exit. Am I going to be actually able to deliver on that business plan in order to get that return? So the being a professional passive investor requires you to like gain some knowledge around how the game is played. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you can just passively, you know, it's not like buying a stock. You can just buy the stock and be passively disengaged. If you're a professional stock trader, you know everything about the business, the business plan, how they're how they make money, how they don't make money, what their bonds are trading at, and so you need to apply the same principles into 
your investment in, in real estate. So, you know, who are the people that are involved? What is the business plan? Why are we in the market? What does the submarket actually look like? And how do we, how do we actually get these returns that you're projecting? You know, what are the comps in that market? And is it in, is it in line with the actual business plan? Sometimes you hear these crazy things like, oh, we're going to come in and we're going to jack up all the rents, you know, year one, 75 bucks. It's like, well, what about your leases that are in place? You can't just get rid of those. So it might actually, you might only be able to turn a third of your units per year for the next three years. And how does that fall into your business plan? And, and I love that you brought up the term professional passive investor, because I love to think of my passive investors as just simply investors, because they have to know at least how to underwrite the deal that I'm offering to them. And if they don't, I have the responsibility to show them. But sometimes, and I'm not saying this happens because I've never been a part of this, but uh, I've heard it happen. People will just simply hand over their money and things go sideways and they don't understand why. Correct. You should understand the risk involved with any sort of investment, especially, well, actually any sort of investment. I was going to say, especially real estate, but anything, anything yeah. you need to know the risk and the reward. We had talked about that earlier. I just realized that we haven't taken you to present day. Can you tell us a little bit about your real estate journey and sure. where it is in this moment? Yeah. So let's see. Um, in 2018, I was responsible for recruiting about 100 and hiring about 150 people a year. We were growing the company a lot. And uh, I think that year we did a little over 100 million in revenue. And unemployment was 2.89%. We were in the largest expansion since World War II. And it was becoming increasingly challenging to find talent because at that point we hadn't even opened the network beyond our local market into other states. So the light bulb was going off. I was reading a book called The American Jubilee, and it was all about the coming debt crisis and the end of uh, the U.S. dollar, effectively, which if you haven't read the book, I highly encourage it. And um, and the light bulb went off. I said, you know what? The market is just way too good right now. So I started uh, unloading some of my properties that I didn't feel were that well positioned, smaller stuff. And I started writing a business plan um, for how I was going to go bigger because I just understood the power of scale. I didn't effectively know how necessarily at the moment, but I just knew that I had to write the plan and then I could figure out who I needed on my team in order to go and execute that. And then along the way, I found a good mentor who they had been doing it well. They had 500 million in assets under management. They weren't... Um, they didn't even prioritize or sell their mentorship program. I was actually approaching them to invest as a passive investor, hoping, hoping to assimilate the information. And then they pointed me to this program. And then along the way, I met uh, really good partners who filled some in, in some of the gaps that I didn't have. One was a commercial loan originator. The other one uh, was a lieutenant commander in the Navy, but he had traveled all over the world effectively, had an incredible network. He might be the best connector that I've ever met. Um, I'm a pretty good connector, but he knows people. I mean, I'll give you an example. He sends me a message the other day and says, hey, I'm not going to make it to the call today. I'm going to go skydiving with the CEO of Herbalife. I was like, how did you meet this person? You know? And uh, so, you know, you need those kinds of people on your team. And I knew that in order to get to the 
to build the kind of business that we were after, you, you're going to need a team in order to do it because most people get into it by maybe JVing or raising money for other people. And we just weren't interested in that. Um, so we were focused on building a platform. And then so along the way, I started to meet some joint venture partners who, you know, they had a specific problem. Like one of them's a 40 year operator in New York and they haven't been able to do a transaction in three years because it's just so competitive. So they need people who know how to find deals and they bring clout and collateral and equity and they can be a guarantor. And then my other partner, uh, other joint venture partner built a massive storage portfolio and was getting ready to transition out of storage and divest their whole portfolio and move into multifamily. And the way that they built their storage portfolio is they were developing and they were acquiring. So they had a group that they worked with who did all the acquiring while they focused on the development and they were doing nine storage transactions per year. Well, through that relationship, we were able to line up some partners that will do 100% of all of our capital raising. So it took out the need for us to go and really um, try to herd cats and, um, and find individual investors and leverage that group. The challenge comes though, is they have, you know, specific criteria that they are focused on. Like they won't touch, touch anything older than uh, 1995. And so, you know, you're looking at deals in the 95, they're generally going to be more uh, high end B, you know, lower end A type product. And they're, if they go fully marketed, they're trading in fours and three caps. And so finding those off market deals um, is, is our biggest focus because we have all the other components, you know? So uh, this is the state of the market. I'll give you an example. We put an offer in on a deal last week, 100% off market in Tennessee. And we'll go into further detail because I don't want to blow it up yet. Um, but $41 million deal, 252 units, uh, they had a broker price opinion. We got a full OM. I mean, everything was good to go. Solid offer, underwriting, capital lined up. It returns made sense. It's like, wow, this is the deal because we've looked at 600 other deals. This is the first one that looks like a deal. And make the offer, full ask, everything that they want. And they go, wow, we had a chance to speak with a couple other brokers. And that broker told us that we could get uh, $55 million for it. So it went up $14 million in two months as we were getting off. So we're 90% of the way there, right? So that's uh, that's part of the game as well. Um, but we built a deal sourcing team. You know, we have a guy named Dominic who is a guy that I actually hired in my previous career. He wanted to get into commercial real estate. So I, I brought him under the fold. We got him licensed as a, as a real estate broker just so he can understand how the game works. We built the networks and the systems. And then now what starts to happen is you build this business and this brand and stuff, people start to just be attracted to it. So we have a couple of interns and a personal assistant and we screen like 150 deals a month. And um, the hardest challenge we have now is it's one thing to screen them. It's another thing to underwrite them. And uh, since the beginning of this year, we've effectively been fully formed as a group and running full tilt boogie woogie um, with all the players that we now have on the team. Um, we just haven't been able to transact because the market's still stupid and we're not willing to, settle. So that's, that, that I almost want you to repeat it. The market is so stupid. So stupid. I cannot tell you how many deals that we've lost because we have, we try and put out an LOI or an offer a week and we, we 
probably screen just as much as you do, but we underwrite our most of our deals that we look at fully. Wow. Like, if it makes sense, like when we look at it and we screen it, if it may, if it makes at all any sense, we fully underwrite it. And we have um, our assistant and now partner, Alessandro, who does uh, the bulk of our underwriting. And then yeah. the deal gets passed back to us. We fully look at it and then we put out offers. We were at best, best and final on one that just, it didn't take. And we yep. came in and we had the partnerships. We had some pretty like amazing partnerships that we like name dropped people. And we actually came in second to last yeah. out of 15. Yeah. I offered on a deal in Huntsville like three weeks ago and we came in at like 65 a door and the broker's like, Hey man, just want to let you know you didn't make it. Cause we had 14 offers at 73 or 74. I'm like, wow. And remember what I said at the beginning of our, of our, this taping. Okay. Yep. Okay. 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 And, and well, that's, that yeah, that's tough. the, that's the key. And I, I don't know if people really appreciate what it means when we say underwriting. I mean, that is, it can take, if you're really doing it right, it can take five hours to do a really between comps, taxes, insurance quotes, tweaking the model, testing the model, sensitive build, building all your sensitivities and making sure that if it does go sideways that it still will make sense so um, i want to drop just a, before I, as I lose this channel i want to drop a little golden nugget for people though even if you come to second to last or you don't get the deal brokers know that this market is crazy it, they're not looking at you like you're any less than 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 the people that came in higher. In fact, maybe some of them are looking at you like, oh, wow, this person's smart. When there is a turn, this is the person that I want to come to because they're going to be underwriting the deals correctly. So think that, think positively. I've talked to many investors in this market who are just like, I keep on putting offers out, Peely, but I'm not getting it. And I don't want to call brokers anymore because I feel like they think I'm stupid. I'm like, no, no, they don't. They want those offers and they want them to keep on coming. And when this market does turn, they're going to look to you to make those smart decisions. Yeah. Brokers have a fiduciary responsibility to help their client get the highest price possible within reason. Um, and they like to see that if they're sending you deals that you're actually underwriting them. I mean, no, the only thing a broker hates more than not closing a deal is a tire kicker who wastes their time. You know, Brokers care about one thing. Can I get my customer the highest price and will you close? Because if you don't close, they don't get paid, you know? So we always jokingly say brokers are like Tinder. You want to date a lot of them, but you don't want to marry any of them. <laughs> Swish or whatever they Yeah, swipe, swipe. That's what it's like. On the, and brokers are funny, you know, they even get frustrated with you until they have the next deal to sell. And then they'll come back and say, are you guys in? So I, you know, I think it's also important to know what your strategy is. You know, we're, we're looking at value add. I know you guys do the same thing. And so there has to be some sort of Delta for us. We're buying cash flow. It has to cash flow day one. And if it doesn't, we're not interested in it. That's not to say that somebody who has way more money is just looking to place capital and hold on to it. And this is why, you know, markets like Denver can trade at two caps. How does it trade at a two cap? It doesn't seem like there's going to be much upside to it. It's like when you have a billion dollars to deploy inside of a pension fund, you don't care. Mm -hmm. You're saying that's, this is a stand-up, stable deal. I can't lose money in this deal. My job is to protect the cash and the assets long-term. And I have hundreds of, you know, deployments of capital. 
again. Okay. Because the other person that's doing, that's offering the other seller or the other buyer on the other end who's offering or the 10 other buyers on the other end have, have other strategies. Exactly. So I'm hoping that the ones that do get the deal have an upstanding strategy and they do not lose money on that deal. So before I let you go, Samson, and this has been an amazing conversation what is, I know I already asked you this question, but I'm going to ask you again. What is another piece of information, a golden nugget that you have not dropped yet that my listeners can benefit from? Um, you know, I think more specifically, it's just around just being a professional passive investor. You know, just because you decide to be a passive investor uh, doesn't mean you shouldn't be out there really studying the game and learning how the game is played. And, you know, there's groups like ours that, you know, we're, we're not able to deliver the deal. Um, there's tons of great syndication groups out there. You just need to be supremely confident in not how they're doing right now, not even how they've done over the last 10 years, but what is their risk management strategy for when, not if, when things go sideways, because it, it should have shook out in 2020, but it didn't. And it didn't because of COVID relief packages and all these other moratoriums that they put in place that allowed people who are essentially bad actors to continue the party. But I tell you what, when the shoot, when the other shoe drops and it all falls apart, um, you're going to quickly figure out who has been a good, a good player and who hasn't. I mean, I don't know if people are paying attention to what's happening in China right now, but Everground, who's the largest developer out there, has $300 billion in debt that they're getting ready to default on. You know, so they're having their Lehman Brothers moment in another country. So it's happening everywhere. You know, we're in this money printing environment where it's backed by nothing. So you just want to make sure that when and if the storm hits, that you can weather it and that your syndicator can and your operator can actually weather the storm. So if my listeners want to learn more about weathering the storm or learn more about you and your company, how can they reach you? You know, the best place to check us out is thegrowthvue.com. That's thegrowthvue.com. And from there, there's tons of resources, blogs, I've got a full YouTube channel that we've been ramping up. We're trying to get on your level as it relates to just pushing out more content. Um, but we're all about just you know, helping educate people and point them in the right direction, whether it's investing with us or investing with another great syndicator. I don't care either way. I just think that everybody needs to have some sort of real estate as a part of their portfolio. And so go find good syndicators to place capital with. I love that. The collaboration, the, the education, the, the insight that you have, that you have given my listeners is above and beyond. Thank you so much. And my You're listeners- welcome please, please, please reach out to Samson, go check out, go check out his company, go check him out on all the social platforms. We'll leave as many links as we can in the show notes. So Samson, thank you so, so very much for being on. This has been a great conversation. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for my listeners out there, if you love what you heard, please, please rate, review, and subscribe. It would mean the world to me. And for more information, more education, please check out the links below. Thank you so very much. And aloha, love, peace, and make smart decisions. Thank you so much.